0: All right, well, I'm a little bit uh, frazzled uh, this morning. Um, one of the joys of my job is, is being the mean dean, and so I went to address the kindergarten class this morning, right after I pronounced the final blessing. So if you have a kindergartner, ask how that went. Um, the worst part is, uh, unfortunately for them, they have a chi- I have a child who is their age, so I know all of their names. And I used them uh, this morning, and just told them how disappointed the baby Jesus was in them. Okay, so um, you know, so I'm going down there, and I'm 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 praying as I go because I don't I don't want to drop the hammer on these kids, but some of them are being pretty bad, and it's it's an unruly group, and and um, you parents know who you are. And, uh, and so I was going down, and, uh, and so I, I didn't know what to say. And thankfully, there were just enough kids. I actually caught being very defiant and misbehaving, and it totally kicked me into gear. It became very clear where we went from there. So, okay. <sighs> Let's talk about grace and mercy. <laughs> uh, I actually did tell them a lot about how much Jesus loved them, because um, that's the only thing that will change their rotten little hearts. <laughs> Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, your grace is sufficient for us. And Lord, your arm is never too short to save. And Lord, we do pray uh, for the little ones in this church, Lord, that you would reach down in your mercy and you would save them. And Lord, you draw them close to you. Uh, Those of us who are parents or grandparents or siblings uh, of young children, we pray uh, that you would give us the gifts and the graces necessary uh, to be like you to them. In Jesus' name, amen. Rotten kids. Okay. (laughs) Acts chapter 11. Here we go. Uh, Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution, remember a huge persecution is breaking out, that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the head of the Lord and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord in steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. The word of the Lord. So all of a sudden, this church in Antioch that comes out of nowhere, after Stephen was stoned, there was a huge persecution in the church. Um, Very rarely, when there's a big outbreak of persecution, there's a big outbreak. It's very rarely an isolated event. We see that today uh, in the Middle East, certainly in uh, parts of uh, the northern part of sub-Saharan Africa, uh, and, um, and even, uh, even though it was not done uh, namely against Christians, uh, we saw that even in uh, Tunisia last week. But it normally comes in a pretty significant wave, and this is no different that the blood of Stephen has appetited uh, Wet the appetite of those who were persecuting the church, and we see how zealous they are by looking at what Saul's life was before he became a Christian. He was leaving Jerusalem, remember, after the stoning of Stephen, to go to Damascus to kidnap Christians and to bring them back. So we're, that's the level of zeal we're talking about uh, amongst those who would persecute the church. And so it got a little hot in Jerusalem, so folks decided to get out. And as they went... Uh, they sort of decided amongst themselves, look, we're not going to get in as much trouble if we evangelize just the Jews. We'll just we'll just go and evangelize the Jews. It won't cause that much of a stir, but of course it always did, and uh, even more so, really, than, than a lot of the Hellenists and a lot of the Greeks. And so uh, they decided to go off, and up in what is modern-day Turkey, uh, there's a little place called Antioch, and uh, the church is still... Uh, alive barely in Antioch but it's there and this is the first congregation that is formed and really the first congregation of, uh, of non uh, of, of Greek speaking uh, Jews as well as others uh, who are from off uh, that form a congregation and Barnabas goes up to investigate and then he gets Saul and both of them st- spend a year there I mean, this is basically Paul's seminary experience. So he spends a year in the church in Antioch because they are ministering to him just as much as he is. Uh, they are ministering to him just as much as he is ministering to them. But I want to skip forward just a little bit to Acts thirteen verses one through three. Uh, now uh, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers: Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene. Mannequin, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And thus begins Paul's missionary journeys. Um, well, it's interesting uh, that... right I mean, the last time we talked, we were just talking about Cornelius. Remember the centurion... Uh, that became a Christian, the first known Gentile Christian. And now uh, now uh, we have a whole congregation. And Luke tells us in Acts 13 uh, a lot, and in Acts 11, a lot about what the church in Antioch uh, was like. One, Antioch being far enough out, there wasn't much of a persecution there. Uh, Christianity was something totally new. But this is the first place where followers of Jesus Christ were called Christians. This is where uh, Christians, which just means little Jesuses. So uh, Christians were first called Christians uh, in Antioch, uh, which is a pretty significant thing because it moves uh, Christianity from being perceived as just a sect of Judaism and pushes it uh, into something that is, as it is, something different something new, uh, something other, of course, in complete continuity uh, with the Old Testament and Judaism, but Jesus being a fulfillment of all that the prophets and the scriptures foretold. And they were recognized as, this is, this is not your normal synagogue. These people are different. We'll call them Christians. So not only do we know that they were set apart and that they were different, and people noticed that they were different, uh, we see in Acts 13 uh, that... Uh, there was an emphasis on preaching and teaching with uh, Barnabas uh, and and Saul, uh, Paul especially. Uh, but also, uh, they just decided to say, well, let's let's tell you a little bit about the congregation. So uh, there's Barnabas the apostle, uh, there's Simon who was called Niger, uh, there's a guy named Lucius of Cyrene, uh, Mannequin, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and and Paul. And so just in that, what we see is that not only are they able to perceive the difference because of their belief and in their action, they're different, but also, uh, for the first time in a very long time, I would imagine, you had people of different races and ethnicities worshiping together. So Luke goes out of his way to say that this is a fully integrated congregation. So you have Barnabas, uh, who is Jewish, uh, Simon, who is a black man, uh, Lucius of Cyrene there in the Mediterranean, uh, but also uh, Mannequin, uh, who's a member of the court of uh, Herod the Tetrarch. So you have both poor and wealthy and powerful worshiping together. And of course, Paul, who was uh, very well educated uh, for his day, uh, bringing that aspect of intellect uh, into uh, the congregation. Uh, and then they fasted and they prayed. So we know the congregation is a praying congregation and a fasting uh, congregation, um, I, you know, I struggle with fasting, um, as you can see, uh, and um, that's, that's an issue, uh, and I grew up in a church that actually the, the rector put an emphasis uh, on fasting, and um, he decided he was going to fast all of Lent, uh, but he, he drank juice, and he took vitamins, and um, it was the worst Lent ever. <laughs> The sermons were not very nice, Um, uh, but uh, it was very funny. After, I said, well, did it do anything for you spirit?" Like, how did you feel at the end of the 40 days? And he said, hungry. (laughs) Um, uh, But he lost a lot of weight, not that that was what he wanted to do. But, you know, the thing about fasting is sometimes that it can be treated as if An if-then thing, like fasting is sort of this magical secret and recipe to unlocking your potential in life or God's greatest mysteries and joys. And I've actually had people tell me that. Well, if you really want to get insight and you really want to get clarity, you need to fast. Uh, And you need to pray. And there's a little bit of truth to that, right? I mean, when you are are not so worried about food, although you're consumed by the thought of food, uh, maybe it does give you a little bit of clarity and insight. But I just want to say this about fasting. Uh, It's not, again, the sort of trick uh, that you can pull off that if you fast, uh, then God will bless you. If anything, um, you know, sometimes I will fast and I'll skip a meal, uh, but that's more of a reminder uh, that I worship my belly. Uh, because it hurts, like it does n- I, I don't enjoy. I don't enjoy fasting. And uh, some of you who are here in the midst of Lent uh, may have given up something very difficult. Um, what, have, what are some of the things uh, that you can legally say out loud that you've given up uh, for Lent? Meat, Catherine. You. Oh, you ridin', Alan. You gave. You gave up meat. You look so pallid and squat. <laughs> uh, so, uh, what else? What else are folks giving up? Sweets, Sweet? Bill. Did you really? What qualifies as a sweet? Like, is a donut a sweet? But candy is? Well, the vary. yeah. Okay, it varies. I understand it's a gray area. Okay, yeah. Uh, of course, of course. Anything else? Who gave up alcohol? <laughs> One guy. One guy gave up alcohol. Uh, and anybody else who want, uh, I don't have a problem. So. Um, <laughs> Well, I mean, uh, God bless you. Um, someone asked me that, what did you give up for Lent? And I was like, nothing. Uh, I gave up nothing. Uh, and uh, that's because I think I've told you the story of, um, uh, there was uh, a period where Lauren and I were dating. I've told the story about Grandma Dot already, haven't I? I don't know. So uh, Lauren's, uh, I, was, uh, I was really doing a good job of avoiding sweets during Lent. And uh, we were at her aunt's house and somebody that morning had gone and gotten a big box of Krispy Kreme donuts, and, you know, hot and ready now, and um, everybody else was partaking, and I said, no, thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm with the Lord. Uh, and um, <laughs> the Lord is my sweetness. Uh, and so uh, Grandma Dot was so impressed. She says, I just don't know. You know, this is so impressive in your willpower. And everyone was like, oh, you know, this thing is really paying off. It's working. Well, uh, that night, everybody went to bed, and, um, and I lay in bed, and it was calling me like a siren. (laughs) So I went downstairs, and not only... I'll just tell you what I did. I got two Krispy Kreme donuts, and I opened up the freezer so I could put a scoop of ice cream between them. (laughs) And I was literally shutting it, like putting it in my mouth and shutting the freezer door with my foot, and there stood Grandma Dot. (laughs) It was the best thing that ever happened to me, uh, because it ought to be hard. We ought to fail, right? The best thing that you can do is, you know, give up fried chicken for all of Lent and on day 39, eat the whole bucket, right? (laughs) Uh, And, you know, uh, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Uh, And so uh, that ought to put us in touch with our our weakness. And so the church in Antioch is not praying and fasting uh, because they're super spiritual, but they're praying and fasting because they understand that they can't do anything in their own strength. But they have to rely completely and totally upon the Lord Jesus for everything that they have and for the decisions uh, that are being made in the life of the church and when they uh, send off Paul and Barnabas uh, to uh, they go off to Cyprus. Uh, well, uh, I think, uh, you know, the, the title of this class is Back to the Future, The End of Cultural Christianity. Uh, I think that what we're seeing right now in Acts is a pretty good parallel to what we're dealing with in the world today. Uh, we're kind of we've come full circle, where uh, as it was in the early church, especially now that it's starting to get established uh, there in Antioch and elsewhere, uh, the people didn't exactly know what to make of the Christians. They just knew uh, that they were different, and it was amazing to me that uh, recently uh, a big survey came out and said that what was the 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 number one Bible reading city in the United States, Birmingham, right? Birmingham, number, numero uno, uh, and uh, and dead last was like San Francisco or someplace like that. Shocking. So I, I was hoping it would say like Pelham, um, <laughs> uh, but um, it didn't. Gardendale. So um, and what amazes me is that in spite of it being a A big Bible reading place, relatively speaking, and the churches are relatively full, uh, and and lots of people have had, I mean, everybody who grew up in this area kind of had an interaction with the church, and yet I run into more and more people who, if you ask them, what is the gospel message, they can't say it. And when you tell them what the gospel is, uh, even in simple terms, God made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. They're going to have to unpack that a little bit. Uh, But nonetheless, um, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Are there they're shocked. What? Uh, they, they have no concept of, honestly, grace. Right? They've got a real healthy concept of what God's demands are on their lives. And sometimes, uh, you know, I, we went to a, um, a dinner uh, party one evening, and, uh, and there was a Christian couple there, and they kept talking about um, how what God really cared about was what you were doing for Him and that God calls but it's our responsibility to pick up the telephone and answer and uh, they were shocked to hear me say God could care less about that he cares about it but that's not God's ultimate concern of what we're doing for him his main concern is that the gospel message would break through hard hearts and that he would know what he's that we would know what he has done for us that's what God is concerned about and that's what you see in the early church going out and telling people about Jesus and what they've done for him, what he's done for them. And when that ma- message takes root in their hearts, their lives are changed. And the fruit of that faith begins to show forth uh, in, in their belief, in, in their everyday life. Uh, we hear about uh, that there's going to be a famine, and there is a famine. Uh, and so here are these... Um... Now, remember, there's still a lot of tension between the, the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians. And yet, uh, who do we, later on we'll see this, who's sending all the money to the needy Jerusalem church? The Gentiles. The Gentiles. Why? Because they know who they are. They know where they've come from. They know who it is that saved them. And so regardless of what the color of their skin is or ethnicity or whatever label you want to throw on yourself, uh, that stuff is eradicated uh, by the gospel, but the way that the Roman world looked, uh, I mean, the New Testament gives us a very good understanding about how the world saw Christianity. First of all, we see that the world is just not ready in its own strength, in its own mind for a Savior. God sends His Son into the world to save the world, and our response was, kill Him. And so, He was killed. Of course, the grave could not hold Him, and He was raised again bodily on the third day, Uh, But as the word began to spread, it immediately uh, faces uh, opposition for various reasons. Uh, The Jews of the day uh, saw it as a great heresy and heretical and a threat to their way of life. Uh, The Romans, as long as you didn't cause trouble, the Romans really didn't care. In fact, the Romans sort of laughed at Christians and thought that they were pagans. Uh, And why did they think that they were pagans? We've talked about this, I thought, before. But anyway, y'all don't listen to anything I say. Just kidding. Yeah. So they would say, you know, well, where, where do you worship? Uh, where's your temple? I don't have a temple. What do you mean you don't have a temple? So where, where, do you, where do you have your sacrifices? We don't have sacrifices because we don't, you know, there's been one sacrifice once and for all, Jesus Christ who died for us. Well, then if you don't have a temple, where do your priests work? We don't have priests, we're a priesthood of all believers, and we have one mediator between God and man, who is Jesus Christ. And the Romans would look at Christians and say, atheists, and walk away, right? Because it didn't fit into the template of the day. And then as Christianity had been to grow in popularity, they were accused of being cannibals. Now, why would they be accused of being cannibals? Take and eat this, right? Um, and, And if you didn't know what was going on, you would think, that's a little gross. Uh, and so they thought of them as cannibals. And then as they began to grow, the Roman Empire saw them as a threat politically. Uh, and so they uh, began to persecute and outlaw Christians in the same way they tried to outlaw and persecute uh, organized labor in the early Roman Empire. Uh, so there are all these trade guilds all over the empire that ended up having a lot of power. And you see that in the book of Acts when Paul, uh, remember when they're in the temple complex and... Uh, and um, in Athens and uh, they, um, I'm sorry, in Corinth, and uh, because so many people are becoming Christians, the idol market is not doing so well, and so the silversmiths get really ticked off and they organize a riot. But that's because they're a union. Uh, and uh, I had a guy in New Orleans once, when I, right out of school, I took a job working with labor unions in New Orleans, and all the stereotypes are true. Uh, and I was at dinner one night with one of the labor union representatives, and he and I got along really well, and I was talking about some neighbors at the end of the street who were just a big pain in the neck, and he said, I can make sure the garbage doesn't get picked up for a month. <laughs> and then I realized that, was, that would be lose-lose, uh, and so I, I waived that offer. But they had tremendous power, and so it's no wonder that the Roman Empire tried uh, to squash them out. The invaluable uh, and long-lasting uh, contribution of the Christian faith uh, to the world in which we live, uh, is not to be believed. Uh, Jesus' fingerprints are all over everything, even if people would say that they're not. And so one of the issues I've been reading a lot about recently, uh, uh, this is not uh, really pleasant, but, uh, but it was the, the practice of infanticide in the ancient world. And uh, I was just reading Durant the other day, and it said, he writes, "...in many instances, uh, Christians rescued exposed infants baptized them, and brought them up with the aid of community funds. And so one of the things that would happen in the Roman world, and indeed the only other segment of the population who didn't really do this, uh, were the Jews. Uh, Everybody else, I mean, in Carthage we had, I mean, you can go to Carthage today over where the Punic ports are in Tunisia, and you can actually see the big pit uh, where they threw the babies into the burning fire. Um, and then, of course, there was a period of time, even in the history of Israel, uh, where children were being sacrificed to Moloch um, uh, outside of Jerusalem. So, but, I mean, you have that, that end, which is just awful. But it was actually common practice in the ancient world that if a child uh, was born with a defect or any deformity, or if they couldn't afford the child... Or they just didn't want the child. In fact, the dad had complete say. So there was this actual ritual of sorts that the baby would be birthed and the baby would be shown to the father. And the father would decide in that moment whether they would keep the baby or not. And there were these places that the children would be dropped off. And now the ancient world would say, well, it wasn't infanticide because we were leaving the child up to fate. We were putting our trust in fate. And so, yes, they could die of starvation. Yes, they could die of exposure, uh, but somebody might come along and rescue them, right? Somebody like Moses in the basket. Someone might pull them in from the Nile. Uh, or what really, before the Christians came along, what would happen is slave traders would get the babies and then breed them and grow them up and then breed them as uh, slaves. Uh, and so Christians began to go out and um, uh, and get these, uh, get these babies. And... Um, and so uh, it seems strange to us. I mean, we hear about, I and mean, that's brutal. Would anybody in the world today, I'm sure somebody would be okay with it, but, uh, but would we tolerate something like that? No. And yet, if we lived 2,000 years ago, it would be the opposite. It would be commonplace. We'd say, of course you do that. Uh, of course, the worst possible scenario, would happen. the people who were most likely to be left out were uh, those who were born with birth defects, those who were mentally disabled, and... Girls, girls. Uh, And so Christians um, uh, would come and and, uh, pick them up and take them and raise them uh, as their own, which I can only imagine the awkwardness of um, being in the same town and watching the Christians raise your child. Uh, Now again, they didn't feel as bad about it as they should have, uh, but because of that Christian witness, and it wasn't over and against the culture But it was engaging the culture. Here's a heinous practice that we are going to engage in, and we're going to get these babies, and and we're going to to bring them up uh, because uh, our faith in the Lord Jesus, our love for Him uh, compels us. And in fact, it wouldn't be until 313 that Constantine uh, issued the Edict of Milan, which said Christianity, actually all religions at that point, became tolerated. You can be whatever you want. Uh, Before that, there were on and off persecutions. And then in 380 uh, is when um, Theodosius said that Christianity uh, was the official uh, religion of the empire. Uh, But some of you may uh, know uh, this little story. Um, It is uh, a sort of modern-day parallel of what we're talking about. It's not without controversy. And... There you go. And so we're only going to watch a little bit of this. This is Dateline in uh, in the UK, so um, they're not trying to sound smart. Welcome back. Every once in a while here at Dateline, our video journalists are fortunate
1: enough to meet some truly inspiring people. Our next story fits that bill exactly. David Brill has been in Korea, where a pastor has devoted his life to caring for society's outcasts many of whom are babies, only a few months old. More remarkable still is the way they're delivered into his loving care. Here's David. It's a moment Pastor Lee Jong-rak has experienced many times. Oh. Um. The arrival of a tiny bundle, oh. a newborn, left in his purpose-built baby box. In South Korea, hundreds of unwanted babies are abandoned every year. Many are dumped on the streets. This little girl is one of the lucky ones. Pastor Lee's two-storey house doubles as an orphanage, a noisy and chaotic place filled with love. Helped by a handful of volunteers, the pastor and his wife care for 18 children and young adults. Most have mental or physical disabilities. All were abandoned. The couple have adopted ten as their own as many as the authorities will allow. 장애인들은 무시하죠. 편견이 심해요. 그리고 장애인들은 소외시켜요. 그리고 멸시해요. 멸멸시한단 말이야. 그리고 천대를 해. 천대 천대한단 말이야. 그러니까 그 사람 취급을 잘안 해. 그래서 그 아이들은 정말 벨파크스가 아니면 어 내가 봐도 아 얘는 volunteer <mimics>
0: Soul
1: Ki-ja introduces <mimics> me to Soul, who has lived here since she was
0: eight. <mimics> <mimics> 음, Without Pastor Lee,
1: what would happen 네. to somebody
0: like this girl here? 지금 아무것도 되는 것이었고. a
1: what would happen to
0: somebody girl. here? 아마 뭐 sure if she's 근데 얘는 i
1: girl. Pastor Lee's labour of love began nearly three decades ago, with the birth of his disabled son, Eun Mun.
0: Okay, well we could continue to to watch that, it's a pretty remarkable um, story. Yeah, it's hard not to watch that and uh, to be overwhelmed uh, by uh, how God is using this man. It's not without controversy. In fact, if you wanted to watch the rest of it, uh, it it brings in folks, uh, even Christians who think what he's doing is a terrible, terrible thing that it's They think that it's giving license uh, to having uh, people drop off. And there's actually, I didn't want to show it, but they actually have a little video camera out there, uh, and they can see... The moms, and I mean, some of them are just heartbreaking, bringing the babies, and uh, and sometimes they leave notes. Um, I mean, who in their right mind would do something like that, right? I have three healthy children, and they drive me crazy, and yet, God has worked in this man's life in such a way he's not out on the street saying this country is full of terrible parents that need to take responsibility for their child. Now, certainly that that is the case uh but the primary mode of his mission is is to just take the little ones in no questions asked just to rescue them to be jesus uh to them and so in the world in which we live uh, which has lots of decided ideas about various uh things uh Sometimes I, I can see why he's made a lot of people mad because it makes them look bad, <laughs> right? It makes them look bad. And yet if you continue to watch, and as you've already seen, I mean, there's not, uh, he has no angle, right? He, he has no angle except, uh, except Jesus in providing a safe haven, uh, for these children, uh, who, who are un uh, wanted. And there he is, uh, being a light uh, in a very dark area of that culture. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, said this, "'You are the salt of the earth, "'but if salt has lost its taste, "'how shall its saltiness be restored? "'It is no longer good for anything "'except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. "'You are the light of the world. "'A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, "'nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, "'but on a stand.' and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father uh, who is in heaven. It's interesting that, that Jesus uh, would say, didn't say, uh, you need to try to be more salty or you need to shine just a little bit brighter. Um, like we've banned the song, Jesus Wants Me for a Sunbeam in our house. Uh, but what Jesus is saying, if you're a Christian... You are salt and you are a light. So on the one hand, what Christianity does for the world uh, does what salt does. It enhances things. It brings out uh, the flavor. It actually exhausts things. Everything from the arts uh, to anything else in the culture, Christianity makes that much better. Uh, Jesus is not saying, I want you to go over and against the culture, but I want you to engage the culture in order to bring out what is best in it. And more than that, you're not just salt... Your light. Uh, the Bible talks especially in John's Gospel about Jesus being light and the light has come into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And uh, for those of us who once walked in darkness, who have now seen a great light, uh, it is glorious, and, and we bask in it. Uh, but we know that there are those in this world who would not rather not walk in the light. Uh, I remember as a kid I pulled up a big piece of plywood once, and underneath of it were all Manner of evil creatures, uh, right? Snakes. There were some millipedes and centipedes, and they. Uh, but as soon as the light hit that patch, what happened? They went. They went scurrying. They. They took off because they would rather dwell in darkness uh, than light. And many people won't want to dwell in light. Why? Because their deeds are exposed. Who they are is exposed. And there's even some reticence on our part of walking in the light, uh, because we might be able to find out. Uh, Someone might find out who we actually are, and yet what Jesus says is not you that they see, but that they may praise your Father, who is in heaven. And so God using us uh, to do uh, these good works that is rooted in a faith in Jesus Christ, and out of that faith spring all of these things, and stuff that has eternal consequences. Right? stuff that, that I mean, he literally is changing lives one after another in an incredibly beautiful uh, way, all because he's a Christian. He's simply salt, and he's simply light. Now, I do think in our culture, especially in the church today in the United States, we are very guilty of, uh, of being a light and then putting a bushel over us, right, and, and hiding it and thinking, well, let's contain our light into our immediate vicinity an area Uh, But in a broken and dying world that is screaming for answers and is dwelling in darkness, uh, God calls us uh, to go, uh, to go into the world and make disciples, to take uh, Jesus uh, to everybody uh, and to see lives changed uh, for our good, uh, but above all for His his great glory. And so we see in the church of Antioch uh, this powerful transformation where all of a sudden things like this are happening simply because Jesus and the world looks at them and doesn't know what to do with them, but they know that they're different. And that all of a sudden there's something there about Christianity and it may be that which draws them in, uh, but they, it's that grace and that forgiveness that's offered through Jesus on the cross uh, that um, those uh, who want to come out of the darkness long to hear. Questions, comments, concerns?
1: I guess your comment about putting a bushel over the light, it just seems that, I guess what I heard from Bishop Mike Hill last week was that we are turning a blind eye, that we're not speaking up, that we're not stepping out, getting out of the boat as he used to say. Yeah,
0: we take for granted the things, I think that everyone just sort of well, it'll write itself. You know, history has a way of writing itself, and so we're not going to worry about this, or we're going to worry about that. And yet, one of the things that's happening in our world, especially because of technology, things are moving so fast that we don't even have time to sort of formulate an answer. So we're always caught on our heels, and we just hope that certain things blow over. I didn't want to get in with it, get into it with him um, about the he mentioned the mitochondrial DNA thing, which he said got blown out of proportion, and I thought. Did it? Because uh, it's a little strange, but it's using a third person's DNA to manipulate a fertilized egg. And so you, in some ways, it, a very good thing. So you could actually uh, eliminate the possibility of that baby getting a hereditary disease. But it can also be used for um, eye color, sex. Uh, you can select the, the sex of the child and, and a lot of uh, other little things. And so it's... Um, uh, it's a it's it's a pretty involved um conversation, but you know how does the church respond to stuff like that? It's a tough one, but the church needs to
1: Andrew, I was just thinking as you were talking about these babies that are thrown into the fire pit, mm-hmm. that we do have a situation going on with abortion and particularly after birth abortion where babies are born live and then just let die or killed
0: after birth. So we really are turning a blind eye to that very sort of thing here in our culture. Yeah, we are, we are. Uh, And I think too though, I mean, what you do see is um, you do see inroads being made um, regarding a culture of life. And so actually it's a much, I mean, the the whole conversation about abortion is a much bigger issue uh, because I think that, that all life is sacred at at any stage of life, and so it wouldn't be enough just to say babies are important, but old people, the elderly, are important too, and in Sweden, good luck finding someone over the age of 80. Uh, I mean, because of all of this assisted suicide, and now even in, is it Norway, that just decided uh, in the courts that you can, um, I'll just say it, basically kill your elderly relative without their permission. Um, if you're if you're their child, you can you can basically decide um, with medical consent that that's that's going to happen. So we think things like never would that happen here, but but it is happening here. I'm sure some of you follow very closely the very sad story of the girl who was battling with cancer in Oregon, and um, and uh, her decision. Uh, and at the end, she she wavered uh, for a little bit, um, but that very. Sad story that, and let's say with mitochondrial DNA or manipulation of children, or I mean the the most vulnerable that that suffer abortion, um, people with Down syndrome. And so I mean, there's there's certainly a part of us that says, you know, would we want them to live, you know, whatever we call normal, but would we want them to be healthy and live a full life? Absolutely. But for any of you who have had any interaction with somebody with Down syndrome or any other mental disability that's been a blessing in some ways. And your life is different and better because of them. And so I think that there's a, there's a real, it's a, it's a cultural death that we've always had around. I mean, look what was happening in the Roman Empire that, that really, uh, I mean, that, we'll see it in the book of Acts. The, the, the non-Christians being provoked to jealousy because they say, see how they love one another. See how they love one another, how they care for one another, how they treat one another. And so, um, so where we can... Um, uh, but that, but the issue, to go back to your original question uh, of abortion, I mean, it's, it's a bigger thing, because I think also we need to have a lot of care and concern for women who have been put in a very difficult situation that don't have the financial means. And so what can the church do to help make that less of an option for women, financially speaking, and parenting? So during the Bush administration, one of the things that came out of, uh, although it's kind of petered off a little bit, uh, they found uh, that, Uh, there were fewer abortions and people, uh, women and children especially, were less likely to go into poverty if there was a dad in the picture. And so that's actually a core root, uh, problem. So they, I mean dads, like having dads own up, to be, I mean, if you're a dad, I mean, there's nothing you can do about that. You're called to be a father, whether you're a faithful one or an unfaithful one, that's something else. And so working in those areas too, what can the church do? Uh, to equip even those men uh, who, who are not taking responsibility or just scared.
1: Uh, in a future class, could you maybe start beginning to talk about your thoughts, plans for our uh, addressing the persecuted Christians in the Middle East or yeah. wherever they might be?
0: Yeah, we're making some headway. I can just tell you right now, Michael Nazarali is leaving in a, in a couple weeks. We're teaming up with him. Uh, it's sort of funny. He said something, well, do you want to sponsor my trip to Iraq? I was like, do we get a logo on your shirt, or what does that mean? And, um, and so uh, he'll, he'll be uh, doing that and reporting back to us if he can get over there. Uh, we're still doing some stuff with Christ Church Jerusalem, and, uh, and uh, we're also now uh, looking when it comes to our missionary partnerships of, uh, of teaming up with people who are going to plant churches uh, in, in Muslim countries, uh, so that's sort of, that's our focus uh, right now in supporting them. I mean, those churches, God bless them, that say we support 300 missionaries, that's awesome, but I'd rather say we support five missionaries and we support them significantly. Like, we're, we're partnering with them, we know their names, we're praying for them, we're, we're, we're pouring uh, our heart out uh, for them and supporting them in any way we can. And so actually, uh, in a couple weeks' time, I think it's the Sunday after Easter, uh, we have uh, some missionaries from Nepal uh, coming uh, to talk in this class. So, all right. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. <laughs>